0: Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ, and welcome to the audio ministry of Christ Church of Livingston County. The following are three excerpts from a Covenant Renewal worship service led by Pastor Dirk DeWinkle, teaching elder at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording.
1: Recall the confession today are the words of John the Baptist, as inspired by the Word of God. Find in Luke 3, chapter, or Luke 3, verses 7 through 9. Then he said to the multitudes that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance, and do not say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones, and even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire." As we consider our own hearts today and this passage, uh, I'll just touch on the various phrases that come from from these verses. First we see that there are crowds that came out to be baptized by John the Baptist, and John is not at all soft-spoken as he addresses them. His warnings are sharp and even since severe. Those who come out to hear him are compared to snakes, the dirt of the earth. And in Matthew 3, the parallel passage, the message to the Pharisees and the Sadducees from John is nearly the same. Then John warns the, of the wrath to come, which is the final judgment of God. There's no fleeing from this wrath except by repentance. And historical judgments foreshadow the final judgment, Moses left Egypt in a smoking ruin. Sodom and Gomorrah were fittingly covered by the Dead Sea, and the floods wiped out all but eight of the human race. When the armies of Rome gathered in force around Jerusalem in 70 AD, it was the point where, quote, the wrath to come had come. Then when when terror rains down from the sky or rolls from the earth or shakes the very earth beneath our feet, as he does regularly, We should be reminded that the holiness of God is not something we can afford to trifle with. And then those that profess repentance are true fruit-bearers. The change of their ways must be evidence of the change in their hearts. In biblical terms, to repent means to alter one's direction and perspective on something and to change sides or point of view. Then John continues to challenge the crowd to consider their own identity. John is clear. uh, religious heritage is not good enough. A good heritage is something to, that has its advantages, but is not a guarantee of blessing. The Jews of John's day thought they could be mere ancestral—that their, their mere ancestral ties to Abraham was good enough to guarantee them a blessing. And don't we often hear today that one could be born in a Christian home, or that the attendance at church makes one saved, a saved person? However, God is clear here to say His blessing is not a matter of physical heirship, but of His redemptive power. That He can raise up children out of stones is pictures the reality that God's power is what produces new life in us. Then the language of the axe that's being brought at the end is ready to remove the trees that do not bear fruit, fruit is further warning, not to lean on our own understanding, but instead to fix our eyes on Christ. And to place our faith and trust in Him for our redemption. These things remind us of our need to confess our sins. Let's do that now together in humility and knowledge our sins, and asking for God's forgiveness. I invite you to kneel where you are if you will.
2: taking a break from our worship series we're doing a series on what it is we do when we worship however this is not such a hard break as it might seem we're we're taking a break from worship our worship series so that we can do a mini series on Advent Um, but but what we're going to find today is that there's biblical warrant for celebration of the church calendar in the principles of Christian worship. I hope to display this for you today, uh, to defend the practice of observing the church calendar. And then we shall have uh, an an introduction specifically to the season of Advent, uh, which is what this mini-series is about. But since we're kind of combining the series today, you'll notice that the title of the message today is an amalgam of the two series, Worship and Advent 1. And there's not an outline in your bulletins, but if you want to know the main points of the sermon, uh, outline the first is worship, a defense of the church calendar, and the second is Advent, a season of anticipation. So we we begin with a, a defense of the church calendar. The church calendar is based on the life of Christ, And using the calendar is an exercise in remembering. When we observe the the, the calendar, the point of it is for us to remember. It reminds us of God's revelation of himself and the history of salvation in the world. So the primary seasons of the church calendar are Advent, the first season of the year, starting in the end of November, beginning of December. Christmas, which everybody knows what Christmas is, Uh, Epiphany, Lent, Passion Week, and in Passion Week that includes uh, Palm Sunday and Good Friday, then Easter, another big one on the calendar, and then Ascension and Pentecost. Uh, And Pentecost ushers in the, the longest section of the church calendar. In fact, we call it the ordinary part of the year. Now, Advent reminds us of the anticipation of God's people for his fulfillment of his promises. That's that's what Advent is about. It's about anticipation, and we'll get into that more later. Christmas reminds us of God's revelation of his salvation in Jesus Christ, in the incarnation, that God had to become a man. Epiphany reminds us of the manifestation of Jesus' kingship in the prophecies of Simeon and Anna when Jesus went to be circumcised. Those are remembered there. We also remember the gifts of the Magi, which were kingly gifts. And we remember the transfiguration on the mount in which Jesus was revealed as the king from heaven in a man's body. Lent reminds us of the trials of Jesus' life. The fact that Jesus participates, and he shares in our suffering, and that he bore our burdens. Passion week, we were reminded of the agony of his betrayal and the murder that took place on the cross. And in Easter, we celebrate the glories of the resurrection and Jesus' victory over death. And then the Ascension is where we're reminded of Christ being seated at the right hand of God the Father and being crowned as Lord over, over all. And in Pentecost, we are reminded of the beginning and the continuation of Christ's work through His people, the church, by His Spirit in the world. So the church calendar reminds us of the history of salvation. And we need to remember this. The Bible is full of commands for us to remember. Full of commands to remember. It's also full of history. It starts at the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the rest of the Bible is the history of what God is doing in the world. In the scriptures, we're told of all the many and wondrous things God has done in the world. And of course, it's not exhaustive history. It doesn't say a lot, for instance, about... The Mitanni kingdom, or the Hittites, well, the Hittites are mentioned. It talks about Assyrians and and about uh, the Babylonians, but there's a lot of details that are not included in the Bible. So much is left out, but that's the nature of history. We can't review everything that's happened every minute of every day. You can't review any minute of any day exhaustively. But we are given all of the pertinent details of the gospel. That there is a God. That he created the heavens and the earth. That Adam and Eve sinned. And thus all men are fallen. We're given the covenant promises. We are shown who the covenant people are. Jesus Christ is revealed to us. The Holy Spirit is revealed to us, and the church is displayed for us. So the Bible is the history of God's redemption, the history of his people, their origins, their struggles, and God's revelation of his plan for their salvation by uniting them to himself in Jesus Christ. And because God is faithful and consistent, the Bible is faithful and consistent Its history and its message has continuing impact in our world. So the fact that it's not exhaustive doesn't mean it's not authoritative. The scriptures are profitable for teaching us, God's people, who God is and what he has done and how he works. Now, one of the ways that he works is by reminding us over and over and over again of all of these truths. That's one of God's glorious redemption, redemption tools, is reminding us. He tells us, and then he commands us to celebrate and remember what he has told us. He puts patterns in the world, the patterns and cycles in nature and in history days, weeks, months, seasons, and years. These are not simple redundancies. God's just not repeating himself because he's bored or he couldn't think of something else to do. He's not boring. That's not why he's doing it. He's doing it because he's gracious. And and these are gracious reminders for us about who he is. So every morning brings forth his mercies and renews his love and displays his grace and his kindness to us. So he's, he's graciously reminding us about who he is and his continuing revelation of how he works. So God fills the world with patterns, but now let's get to the church calendar. How do we get there? We, we seek patterns in history, but we have scriptural warrant for the celebration of the church calendar in the fourth commandment there. God commanded us to remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And we covered this in detail, was it two weeks ago, three weeks ago, where God gives us one day a week, again, that weekly pattern by which we are supposed to come and worship Him. So, a weekly pattern in the fourth commandment, keep my Sabbath. But when Moses fleshed out the Sabbath commandment for the Israelites in Leviticus, in chapter 23 which is going to be our main text this morning. In Leviticus chapter 23, God gives commands for us to keep annual Sabbaths, to keep Sabbaths in their appointed times. And then he tells us what those times are. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, this is Leviticus 23, starting at verse 1. And I'm not going to read the whole chapter, because it gets pretty detailed about which sacrifices to bring and, and which ones to wave and what, whether it's in lamb or grain or leavened bread or unleavened. We'll, we're not going to get into those details today. Leviticus 23, verse 1. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, The feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations, these are my feasts. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work on it. It is the Sabbath of the Lord in all your dwellings. And so far, so good. We've covered this. One day in week, we need to worship. We need to come before God. Verse four. These are the feasts of the Lord, holy convocations, which ye shall proclaim. "...at their appointed times." And now he goes into a list of annual feasts. Verse 5, "...on the fourteenth day of the first month at twilight is the Lord's Passover. And on the fifteenth day of the same month is the Feast of Unleavened Bread to the Lord. Seven days you must eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall have a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it. But you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord for seven days." The seventh day shall be a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it. So here we have the institution of the Passover. And it's a recollection. God already had commanded this in Exodus. But the Passover is to take place on the 14th day of the first month. And then it was a seven day long feast. And both the first and the seventh day were Sabbaths. That God told them to, to, to observe once a year in the first month. Next we have... The feast of first fruits, which took place on the immediately following the first day of the of the of the Passover. So the first day is Passover. The second day is the, the feast of first fruits, and then the seventh day after Passover is the, uh, the 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 also a Sabbath. So starting at verse nine, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, "Speak to the children of Israel and say to them." When you come into the land, which I give to you, and reap its harvest, then you shall bring a sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. And skipping down to verse 14. You shall eat neither bread, nor parched grain, nor fresh grain, until the same day that you have brought an offering to your God. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwellings. So that's the, the Feast of Firstfruits. And then we have the the Feast of Pentecost, which comes 50 days after the Passover. Verse 15. And you shall count for yourselves from the day after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering, seven Sabbaths shall be completed. Count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath, and then you shall offer a new grain offering to the Lord. You shall bring from your dwellings two wave loaves of two-tenths of an ephah. They shall be a fine flour. They shall be baked with leaven. They are the first fruits to the Lord. Skipping down to verse 21. And you shall proclaim on the same day that it is a holy convocation to you. You shall do no customary work on it. It shall be a statute forever in all your dwellings throughout your generations. So there we have the command of the feast of Passover and firstfruits, and then another first fruits feast, which is the the the, the feast of Pentecost. And I, I skipped to the verses that talked about you're supposed to leave your grain in the fields uh, for the uh, for the for the poor. Um, but this there's after this feast, there's there's a, a break of four months before the next feast, which is the feast of trumpets, which takes place on the first day of the seventh month. So we're we're in uh, Pentecost. We're in the third month. And then we go to the first day of the seventh month, and so you have got a four-month break there. And, and part of these feast days is generosity. So God is including all of the people, those who can afford it and those who can't afford it, through the generosity that He commands His people to observe in bringing their their first fruits, their tithes, to Him. For his goodness to them. Next, we jump to the Feast of, of Trumpets, which is in the seventh month, the first day, verses 23 and 25, through 23 through 25. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall have a Sabbath rest, a memorial, a blowing of trumpets, a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it, and you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. So we've moved from the spring harvest to the fall harvest. And the the people are rallied together for the fall harvest with a blasting of trumpets in which they they praise God and they give thanks for His goodness to them in the year. Next, the, the Day of Atonement is prescribed. This is on the tenth day of the seventh month. So nine days after the first day of the seventh month. And this Day of Atonement is commemorated by affliction of soul. It's commemorated by fasting. And it's because we need to be atoned for. I'm going to just read verses 27 and 32. Also the tenth day of this seventh month shall be the day of atonement. It shall be a holy convocation to you. You shall afflict your souls and offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. And verse 32. It shall be to you a Sabbath of solemn rest. And you shall afflict your souls on the ninth day of the morning at evening. From evening to evening, you shall celebrate your Sabbath. And then on the 15th day of the seventh month, so we've gone from the first day of the seventh month to the 10th day of the seventh month, and five days later, we're commanded to celebrate the Feast of Booze. And this is a, another seven-day feast. It's a harvest celebration. And in the, in the Feast of Booze, we are commanded to rejoice. And both the first and the eighth days of the Feast of Booths are Sabbaths. Verses 34 to 36. Speak to the children of Israel, saying, The fifteenth day of this seventh month shall be the Feast of Tabernacles for seven days to the Lord. On the first day there shall be a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it. For seven days you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. On the eighth day you shall have a holy convocation and you shall offer an offering made by by fire to the Lord. It is a sacred assembly and you shall do no customary work on it. And then moving down to verses 41 to 44, he's still talking about the Feast of Tabernacles. You shall keep it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It shall be a statute forever in your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall dwell in booths for seven days. All who are native Israelites shall dwell in booths. And this is very, very cool. It tells us why. That your generations may know that I made the children of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. It's to remind us again and again and again. He even repeats himself over and over as he's giving us the commands to remind us again and again and again, to remember that he is our God and he's drawn us out of Egypt. He's delivered us from our sin. So Moses declared to the children of Israel, the feasts of the Lord. These feasts were the feasts prescribed for the Israelites as they left the land of Egypt. And they were the principal feasts of the Jewish, Jewish calendar. And there are strong connections between the feasts of the Old Testament and the feasts that we celebrate in the church calendar. Good Friday correlates to Passover. Passover. Good fr- so what happens at Passover? The, the Israelites gather together and eat the Passover meal, the lamb that is sacrificed and the blood that is spread on a doorpost so that their sin would be overlooked and the angel of death would not destroy them. Jesus celebrates the Passover with his disciples on the eve before he's betrayed and and crucified. Good Friday correlates to Passover. Easter correlates to the first fruits. Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection from the dead. The feast of the first fruits. We celebrate Easter because in Jesus we we have our hope of of life from death. And Pentecost, well the, the name is obvious. They had Pentecost. We had Pentecost. It still comes 50 days after. Well, maybe God was telling us something when He gave us these Old Testament feasts. They're pointing to Jesus. They're pointing to the coming of the Spirit. So it's obvious in name, and the Spirit brings the first fruits of the church the spirit sets that we are we are set apart we are holy unto the lord because the spirit is working in the world and he sanctified us and we are then given over to our god as the first fruits at pentecost is that's what we remember how the church was set apart how those disciples in that upper room were were illuminated with the spirit and the gospel went out with power and even the feast of tabernacles is Analogous to our, our feast of Thanksgiving in America or even our celebration of Christmas. I mean, so with with with, with uh, Christmas, what do we do? Well, we get the Christmas tree all set up and we put the lights on the house and, and everything, the, the, the season is different for a, an extended period of time. Tabernacles, they had to travel all the way to Jerusalem. They lived in tents for seven days just to remember the goodness of God. To remember the deliverance that He gave them as they were coming out of that wicked place in Egypt. It's a time of remembering and giving thanks for God's provision. And the Day of Atonement is even analogous to Ash Wednesday or to, to or to penitential seasons of of of, of the season. Advent and uh, Lent were historically penitential penitential seasons in which we we remember that we're not there yet we haven't r- arrived and we need salvation we need deliverance and so there's there's room even for seasons of of penitence and and recognizing our our continuing need of God's deliverance now there were later national feasts that were added to the calendar uh, Purim was added to celebrate the deliverance from Haman's plot in the Book of Esther, and uh, then we have even uh, there's an, even a feast that was added after the Old Testament during the, the intertestamental period. Hanukkah celebrates the Jewish victories during, uh, during when, the, when the Maccabees took over um, in, or, or were given victory in the the Promised Land during the intertestamental period. Now, I do need and want to take a moment to address some Protestant objections to historic follies in church calendar observance. This is important. The Jews got it wrong. In the kingdom era, they forgot to keep God's Sabbaths. They didn't do it. They forgot to remember their God. And God punished them and sent them into exile for it. They didn't take their years of Jubilee and give the land its Sabbath rest. And God took them out of the land for 70 years so the land could have its Sabbath rests. They forgot to keep the Sabbaths. And then after God brought them back to the land... The post-exilic Jews thought that correct Sabbath observance would make God send the Messiah. And they got Sabbath wrong. They they were straining at nets while they were swallowing camels. Instead of Sabbath being a time for us to rest and remember God's deliverance and rejoice in His salvation, they were making the Sabbath a burden on the people. Binding heavy burdens that they weren't able to bear. Similarly, the church has overdone it in the past. To the point where for the medieval church, every single day of the calendar was a feast day of some sort. Every day. And many days had multiple saints or multiple reasons for us to celebrate them. It was just a smorgasbord of choices. And you could pick your patron saint for whatever it was you wanted to pick your patron saint for, and you could do whatever you wanted because there was no consensus or clear direction. It wasn't useful for remembering anything. It was just confusion. This is a problem because if every day is special, then no day is special. The response in the Protestant church has ranged. It has ranged from a hard rejection of all observances of annual calendar things. No special days at all. We won't even, Christmas is a pagan holiday. We're not going to do that. You've heard that argument before. To... The, the most broadly practiced is to hold on to the, just the evangelical holidays of Christmas and Good Friday and Easter and sometimes including Ascension and Pentecost, but that's about it. And we don't really know a lot about them. We just know a little bit about them. To, in some, uh, in some Protestant churches, they, I mean, they go with the whole shebang. They have, you know, every season is commemorated, and they talk about it, and they know about it, and, and the pastor wears different colors during times of the year. They, they de- decorate the sanctuary different for different times of the year. Now, our own practice is that we fall somewhere between the second and third of those options. Um, and it, it doesn't matter, ultimately, because Paul tells us very clearly that he who observes the day observes it unto the Lord and he who doesn't observe the day doesn't observe it unto the Lord. So church calendar is a matter or practice of church calendar is a matter of conscience. What you are convicted by you then, then go go with that and trust God and give him thanks. If you don't observe it, great, praise God. If you do observe it, great, praise God. It ought not to cause enmity within the body. But the point of it all is to show us Christ and to celebrate the salvation that God has given us in Him. To glorify Him and to give thanks. And the church calendar can and should be a tremendous help in doing this. It ought to help us. And that is why we are doing a mini-series On Advent. Which brings us to our second point. And don't worry, it's not as long as my first point. (laughs) In Advent, we remember God's promise of the Old Testament. And we remember the long wait that God's people endured anticipating and hoping and waiting for the Messiah. We remember the prophecies of Isaiah. And we remember John the Baptist preparing the way. We remember his baptism of repentance. We remember how lost we were without Jesus Christ. And we remember and we remember that we still look forward to his coming back. All of this memory and remembering is anticipation. And this anticipation is full of two things. Repentance and hope. We anticipate filled with repentance. Becoming more and more aware of our need for continued redemption and salvation. Becoming more and more aware of our need to repent and define and confess our sins. And this anticipation is filled with hope. Because we look to God for the fulfillment of His promises and the carrying out of His plan for the salvation of the world. Our New Testament text this morning in 2 Peter 3 outlined both the hope and the repentance. Starting with hope. Verse 13 of 2 Peter 3. Nevertheless, we, according to His promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. God's promises are great. Our hope is, is outstanding. There's, it, it, we, if, if our hope comes true, nothing will be lost. All will be saved. All good will be preserved. And God will be glorified and every wrong will be put right. Right. And then Peter points us to our need for repentance in verses 14 and 15. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace without spot and blameless. And consider that the long suffering of our Lord is salvation. Our, our anticipation is filled with repentance because it's our, it's our patience that is that makes us perfect. In Advent, we look exactly where we are supposed to look for these things. For our hope and for our repentance, we look where we're exactly where we're supposed to look, and that's to God, to Jesus Christ. The Advent season is all about anticipation, anticipation of the incarnation of Jesus, anticipation for the fulfillment of God's promises, and anticipation of salvation. From our sins and from all our enemies. And the suspense is killing us. And it should. Death to the old man and life to the new. We need to be anxious for Jesus' coming and his manifestation in our world. Setting up the Christmas tree, putting out the lights on the house. Shopping for Christmas presents and preparing the feasts, thinking ahead about the parties and the celebrations that are coming. All these things point to the specialness of what God did when he gave us a savior. There's a reason for this season. And it's good for us to anticipate Jesus coming, to look forward to it, to get excited about it. It's good for us to long for that. It's good to yearn. Because what we yearn for is good. So repent of your sin. Hunger for Jesus and believe in the promise. Because Christmas is surely coming. In fact, it will be here before you know it. So as we take the next few weeks to celebrate Advent and build our anticipation for Christmas, we are living in congruence with scriptural teaching on worship, and we're also embracing the revealed grace of the gospel in the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. message this morning, I told you that it is good to hunger and thirst and long for and yearn for Jesus. And it is. That is what Advent is all about. But the world we live in and the Christian life we live is a life of transition. We are travelers. We are pilgrims standing in the promised land yet surrounded by enemies. We have a destination and we have arrived, but we are not yet there. We are holy, but we are not yet fully sanctified. We are dead to our sin, and yet we fight it every day. We have eternal life, yet we must still pass through the veil of death. We are a people who anticipate glory while we participate. In it. And this is so because our God is gracious. He gives us gifts of strength, hope, patience, faith, and endurance, so that we can say and know that He that we will get there in the end. This meal is all about strength for the remainder of the journey. God gives us Jesus, and he is sufficient to carry us through to our final destination. So hunger, thirst, long for, and yearn for what you are about to receive. And God keeps his promises. Christ's body, broken for us. Let us pray.
0: Thank you for listening to these excerpts from the worship service of Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in these messages, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact Pastor Dirk DeWingle through our website, ChristKirkMI.com That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I dot com.